Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, visit www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. On Sunday, August 27th, 2006, about one hour before sunrise, Com Air Flight 5191 left its terminal at Bluegrass Airport in Lexington, Kentucky. It began to taxi towards its runway for takeoff. Bound for Atlanta, Georgia, the regional jet was carrying 47 passengers, two pilots, and one flight attendant. Among the passengers were newlyweds eager to kick off their honeymoon. Another couple had recently been engaged. There was also a University of Kentucky dean on board and a member of Lexington's most philanthropic family. Just one minute after the plane's wheels kissed the runway goodbye, the cool and tranquil Kentucky morning was halted by the sound of 50,000 pounds of debris and jet fuel crashing into a field just one mile from the airport. 49 out of 50 souls perished that day. Only the first officer who happened to be at the controls survived after being pulled from the flaming wreckage, barely alive. The subsequent National Transportation Safety Board investigation revealed the following factors played a role or caused this fatal crash. The flight crew was still engaged in casual conversation about unrelated topics while taxiing instead of devoting their complete attention to takeoff procedures. According to the investigation and all the evidence that was gathered in the black box recordings. This resulted in the failure of the flight crew to cross-check and verify that the plane was on the correct runway before takeoff. Tragically, the previous two factors led to Com Air Flight 5191 taking off on the wrong runway. There are just two runways at Bluegrass Airport in Lexington, Kentucky. Runway 22 is designated for commercial aircraft. It's just over 7,000 feet long and has 600 feet of safety area at both ends. That's the green one way that you see on the keynote screen behind me. That's the one they should have used. Runway 26, on the other hand, is much shorter and only for civil aviation flights. It's only 3,500 feet long. Runway 26 is what the flight crew took instead. Like so many other airplane crashes, this one could have been prevented if the captain and first officer had been paying attention to what they were doing and had each fulfilled their assigned responsibilities. If you were here last week, you may remember me using Steve Farrar's 
metaphor of the husband and wife teamwork being like a captain and first officer flying a 747. Sitting in first class are all your immediate family members, and down in economy is everyone else who's a part of your family's life. One of the greatest tragedies in our country today is too many family 747s crashing and burning because husbands are talking too much, cross-checking their responsibilities too little with God's word, and thus taking off in the wrong direction. But by God's grace, there is always hope And he can help any family 747 in a nosedive pull up and start flying right. We're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians today called Chosen. I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5 and pull out the sermon notes you received when you arrived today so you can record what the Lord wants to reveal to you in this message Extra sermon notes can be found at the information table in the back of this room next to the tithes and offering box. And if you forgot your Bible, you can borrow one of ours at the information table. Uh, In my back left, it'd be your right. Now would be the best time to grab any of those if you need them. Before our second COVID-19 shutdown, we learned... Uh, from chapter 5, verses 18 to 21, that the secret to living the holy lives God wants His children to live is being filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is to continually surrender control of your life to the Spirit so He can make you mature in Christ. We see that command in chapter 5, verse 18, where the apostle writes, to be filled with the Spirit, not drunk with wine, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, and giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To be filled with the Spirit is a regular abiding in and yielding to Christ's Lordship in your life by practicing the spiritual disciplines. In verse 22 Uh, The apostle then transitions into how the gospel and being filled with the Spirit should impact our relationships. He begins with the relationship between husband and wife. And last week we learned that wives are called by God to submit to their husbands and that he has good reason for that. And this week... Paul is going to address the responsibilities of a Christian husband. We can summarize his instructions with this big idea, and that is the Christian husband is called to lead his wife just as Christ leads the church. The Christian husband is called to lead his wife just as Christ leads his church. The context of Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 is very important, especially in the original Greek text. 
And that is because every verb following verse 18, the command to be filled, every verb from verse 18 through the end of the chapter is connected back to the command to be filled. Thus, wives submitting to their husbands and husbands leading and loving their wives, etc., are all intended to be byproducts or proof of being filled with the Spirit. Now, ladies, if you weren't here last week, I really want to encourage you to listen to last week's sermon online, especially if you expect your husband to apply today's sermon. I promised last week that the husbands would have their turn to, uh, shall we say, go out to the woodshed um, (laughs) to be convicted by the word, I meant. And if you don't know where to find last week's message, I'm sure your husband would love to help you find it online. Wink, wink. So men and boys... The Apostle Paul makes it clear in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you have been chosen to lead your wife and family. And proof that you are filled with the Spirit is found in whether you are taking that calling seriously. Now, before we unpack Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 together, I first need to give you some essential background information on the origin of male leadership in the home. And this brings me to the first point on your outline, which is this, number one, the Lord has historically held men responsible for the leadership of their home. The Lord has historically held men responsible for the leadership of their home. Now, after you write that down, if you would, please uh, keep your finger in, uh, or a placeholder in Ephesians 5, and turn back to Genesis chapter 2 with me. Genesis chapter 2. I thought about maybe just throwing these verses up on the screen and whipping through this quickly, but after much prayer and consideration, I decided it was more important that you see this with your own eyes. And so I'm going to quickly walk you through Genesis 2 and 3 in hopes of helping you understand why the Lord, or at least where it started, Him holding men accountable and calling men to spiritual leadership. Now, Genesis 1, of course, describes how the Lord went about Uh, creating the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 2, the Lord decides to make the first man, Adam. And he does so in chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Now let's pick up the story in verses 16 and 17 of Genesis 2. This is where Paul, excuse me, not Paul, excuse me, it'd be Moses, who writes this, And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So the garden is established, man is created, and the command to not touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is given to him. 
Now, where is the woman when this command is given? That's right. She had not been created yet. Let's continue reading. If you would look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now let's skip down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, This is at last... This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So now Adam has he's named all the creatures in creation. He's named woman. The Lord gives him a partner. The first couple is living in paradise. They're having... In an uninterrupted fellowship with the Lord, life is good, and then chapter 3 happens. Let's look at chapter 3, and I'll read verses 1 through 6. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now it's at this point that sin enters the first couple and the whole world has been falling apart ever since. Ashamed of their sin, Adam and Eve try to hide from God in the garden. However, please notice who the Lord looks for first to hold accountable for their disobedience. And this is in verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now, is this fair that the Lord would call to Adam and say, what's going on here? What happened? Didn't I tell you that you weren't to do this? I mean, didn't the woman disobey first? And then she tempt her husband. I mean, why doesn't the Lord start by asking her who misled her husband or why she misled her husband? Well, I have some thoughts on that. I think it's because ever since the first marriage, 
the Lord has expected the husband to show his wife how to obey the Lord. He gave the husband the command and entrusted the husband with passing that on to her and doing whatever it took to make sure that it was followed. Sadly, Adam ends up blaming his wife and she ends up blaming the serpent. And then in verses 17 to 19, the Lord doles out consequences to the serpent, to Eve, and then to Adam for their disobedience before he evicts them from the garden. Let's look at chapter 3, verses 16 to 17 as we look at their consequences. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. And so because of Eve's disobedience, she is sentenced to have pain in childbirth and to having her husband rule over her. And because she rebelled against God in the garden, God says her new sin nature that she has will cause her to rebel against her husband. The end of verse 16 says in the ESV, your desire shall be contrary to your husband. That's, a, I think, an okay translation of it. The, there's a little bit of difficulty with the, the Hebrew word for desire. And so some Bible translations struggle with how to render this, uh, depending on which translation you have. I think the ESV does okay. Uh, the New English translation, I think, says it best. And that is, you will want to control your husband. Why? Because of your sin nature. Your sin nature, ladies, is what makes you want to rebel against the man God has put over you. And Adam, because he allowed his wife to mislead him, receives the curse of doing hard work on earth, and he receives the blame for the fall of the entire human race. The long-term consequences of the fall can be seen in Paul's Magna Carta letter on the gospel, his letter to the Romans. Now, for the sake of time, I will show you this verse on the screen. Uh, it's a lengthy argument that Paul makes in Romans 5, but here's the most important two verses. In Romans 5, Paul makes it clear who God held responsible for sin entering the world and who will save people from their sin. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So, by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Of course, referring to Jesus. So just as Adam was responsible for the fall of mankind, Paul is saying Jesus will be responsible for the redemption of man. Now, is, is it fair that Adam is blamed for the fall? I mean, why, does, why, does, why isn't Eve put in Romans 5 there? Is it fair? Mm, yes and no. 
could argue both ways. But regardless, if any wife wishes that she was given the leadership role in the home, she would also need to be accountable to the Lord just like Adam was. Because you cannot have authority without taking responsibility. The two always go together. Now, what does this all mean? It means that the Lord has historically held men responsible for the leadership of their home. And in order to maintain the order in the home that did not exist in the garden in Genesis 3, the Lord has delegated authority and responsibility to the husband for the good of the home and the good of his family. Now, if you would turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 5, and I'm going to continue to tie this all together for you. Ephesians chapter 5. And we're going to pick up in verse 22. Ephesians 5:22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Here's point number two on your outline. The spirit-filled, excuse me, spirit-filled husbands lead their wives spiritually. Spirit-filled husbands lead their wives spiritually. Paul leaves no room for confusion as to who God wants to be responsible for the family by using the Greek word kephale. Kephale is rendered in the English text that we have as head. It means to have authority over. Nearly every time it's used in the scriptures, kephale refers to someone of rank or authority. It's a word that describes a person's role, not their value. Now, that's really hard to distinguish in today's world because our culture bombards us with the message that, no, 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 your role determines your value. But that is anti-biblical. That is not how God sees it. This is critical because it's just one of many proofs that the Lord sees the husband and the wife as having equal value but different roles in the home. The word kephale also conveys leadership because it sometimes was used in the scriptures to refer to the physical head of a person or animal, the head that's on your shoulders. And just as your own head determines where your body goes, so the husband has been charged with providing direction for the family. Next, Paul says in verse 23, even as Christ is the head of the church, Paul is declaring that the relationship between husband and wife is to mirror the relationship that Christ has with his church. Therefore, just as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands. And just as Christ leads and loves the church, so husbands should lead and love their wives. Now, this brings up a good question, and I want to do my best to answer it this morning, and that is, how should husbands 
lead spiritually. I remember when I was a new believer in college asking my pastor that question. I was hearing kind of uh, indirectly or hints of, you know, the, the man is supposed to be the spiritual leader of the home. And I was about to get engaged to Maya, and I was asking my pastor, what does that look like? How do I do it? And so, uh, in case some of you are there in that situation wondering how, I want to get as practical and as specific as I can. And so, here's uh, letters A and B on your outline. Paul, thankfully, I think answers the question for us. Letter A, the first way that a husband can lead his family spiritually is by walking with Jesus. By walking with Jesus. The prerequisite to walking with Jesus is repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ alone for your eternal salvation. Individuals who sincerely do so surrender control of their lives to Jesus by following his leadership. And so walking is a, it's a metaphor used in the scriptures to simply convey a way of life characterized by a close relationship with the Lord. It's a long obedience in the same direction, as someone once said. It's a, to walk with the Lord is to arrange and adjust and submit everything in your life to the authority of God's Word. And this is critical because only husbands who follow Christ can effectively lead their wives. The second way that a man can lead his family spiritually is letter B, by initiating spiritual activities. A very basic definition of leadership is initiative. Leaders have a vision uh, or a destination they are aiming for. And then they guide those that they are leading towards that goal. In this context, the spirit-filled husband knows his goal is to teach his family how to love, obey, and glorify Jesus Christ in everything that they do. His greatest desire is for his children and grandchildren to, to love Christ and to follow Christ just as he did and to pass the baton of the gospel to the next generation. And only, well, excuse me, godly husbands, they do this by taking the initiative in the following practical ways. Now, hang on for this one. This might sting a little bit. They get their entire family to church on time. Was that, was that, was that some mumbling I heard? Some grumbling? What? That might mean the husband going to his wife saying, Honey, what can I do to help us get to church and seated before the service starts? It might mean that he has to set an earlier bedtime or curfew for his children on Saturday night because we're meeting with the Lord Sunday morning. It might, it might mean he needs to bring coffee to his wife in bed to help her get going faster in the morning. Another way that husbands can practically lead their wives is uh, initiating opening God's word 
and taking his own notes during the sermon on Sunday morning so he doesn't treat his wife like she's a secretary or something. Instead, he models taking in the Word and recording what God is teaching him and reviewing it later in the week during his devotions and having a respect and reverence for the Word of God. He urges his family to serve with him somewhere in the church. He'll help his family get involved in small group discipleship opportunities. He initiates prayer with his wife and children. And he models the spiritual disciplines at home. Just to name a few. The Christian husband is called to lead his wife just as Christ leads the church. And if you would look back at the text with me, as Paul continues to unpack the responsibility of the husband in verses 25 to 27, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Here's number three on your outline. Spirit-filled husbands love their wives sacrificially. Spirit-filled husbands love their wives sacrificially. Well, how did Christ love his church if husbands are supposed to love their wives in the same way? Well, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus, in addition to giving his life for the church, he served the church, he taught the church, he corrected the church, he prayed for the church, he protects the church, and leads the church to do the Father's will. Here are some specific ways in this passage that Jesus loves the church that husbands should also do for their wives. Letter A, husbands should prepare their wives spiritually. He should prepare his wife spiritually. This is so missed in today's... As I was studying this this week more in depth, I was thinking about all the marriage seminars and books that are out there with a Christian name on them. I was thinking about the conferences and the, the books that are in the bookstore and all the resources for marriage that I've seen over the years, and I can't think of one that mentions verses 26 and 27. Paul says that he might sanctify her. Sanctify comes from the Greek word, which means to set apart or to make holy. Men, if you truly love your wife, you should care most about where she stands with Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the only man who can take perfect care of her when you're gone someday. That means the burden of spiritual leadership should motivate husbands to grow in their holiness and wives should become more holy because of their husband's spiritual leadership. This holiness matters to the Lord. Well, how should husbands develop their wives spiritually? Well, in the same way Christ does so with the church. Look at it again in the text. It's right there. Paul lists the tool that's used. Having cleansed her 
by the washing of water with the word. Washing implies there's dirt, meaning there's, there's sin, there's character issues that need to be removed, that she, along with us, needs to be purified. And so Jesus, for example, when he did his high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed to the Father that the Father would sanctify his church with his word, the scriptures. And so thus, that is to be the tool the husband uses in the home as well. This can be done in several ways, including sharing with your wife what you've been learning, men, in God's word, so that she benefits from it too. Counseling her from the scriptures instead of from your own opinions. You don't need to go to seminary to do that, by the way. You just need to develop the ability to have regular devotion time. And as you faithfully have your devotional time with the Lord throughout the week, you will begin to accumulate a knowledge of the word. Men, you will have times when the Lord speaks to you and shows you something in his word in the morning. And then that evening, something comes up with your family directly connected to what you read in the word that morning. Another way that a man can use the word to sanctify his wife is by encouraging her with scripture verses when she needs it, reminding her of God's promises and faithfulness, and if necessary, correcting her with scripture when she needs it as well. And by the way, a lot of people don't like to think of this side of Jesus, but he did this for the church too. Jesus corrected the church. If you haven't read it before, I'd encourage you to read Revelation chapter 2 and 3, where Jesus does a performance evaluation on seven churches. And he tells them what they're doing well, and he tells them where they've gone astray, where they've drifted from the Lord. And because Jesus loves the church, he urges them to repent and to get right with God and to get in line with God's word again. Husbands should do the same for their wives as well because it's loving. It shows a concern for her soul. It shows a concern for her relationship with the Lord. And I would add, it shows that you as a husband fear the Lord more than you fear her or any repercussions that might come with correcting her. So, just in case we're, we're not getting what Paul's laying down here, he clarifies even more. In verse 27, he says that the purpose of, of sanctifying the wife in the word is that she might be holy and without blemish. Why? Because like the church, our wives will someday be presented to the Lord. You see that in the first part of verse 27. Don't take my word for it. Look at the text yourself. You see there, Paul says in verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. So what Paul is saying is, Jesus sanctifies the church because he wants the church to be holy and spotless without blemish when he presents the church to himself on the day of judgment. Well, in the same way, husbands are to help their wives get ready for that day. In essence, the apostle is saying 
We are to prepare our wives for the day in which they will stand before the Lord. And thus our our primary goal is not to romance them, as the world tells us. Not that there's anything wrong with romance. It's not to spoil them, as the world tells us. Not that there's anything wrong with doing that occasionally. It's not to keep our wives comfortable. Not that there's anything wrong with that occasionally. But rather, our primary goal is to help our wives pursue holiness so they won't be ashamed when they stand before the Lord. Let's look at the text again, verse 28, verses 28 to 30. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body. Here's a letter B on your outline. Husbands should also provide for their wives physically. They should provide for their wives physically. This is is one text where we see the Lord saying husbands should be the primary provider in the home. Paul is using an assumption to make an illustration here. The assumption is that all men take care of their own bodies by feeding and uh, their bodies in, in, in bathing and exercising and sleeping. In a similar sense, men are to provide a nice standard of living as nice as they can for their wives by making sure she has her physical needs taken care of. The renowned 17th century Puritan preacher and commentator Matthew Henry, he's written a classic commentary that's well-known by many pastors and serious Bible students, simply called Matthew Henry's Commentary. Well, Henry once wrote this helpful insight about the relationship of the wife to her husband. He says, A woman was not made out of his head to top him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him but out of his side, to be equal to him, under his arm, to be protected by him, and near his heart, to be loved by him. Let's look at the text one last time as we wrap up with verses 31 to 33. Paul writes, Therefore, He's coming in for a landing on marriage. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that. It refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So how do we apply what we've read today in God's Word? What do we do now? Well, in order to be fair, I didn't want to get any hate mail from any wives in our church. I looked back at last week's message applications and then 
built this week's in order to be consistent. And so I've got two for the husbands and one for the wives. And last week I had two for the wives, one for the husbands. So number one, one A, husbands, if necessary, repent and apologize for failing to lead spiritually. Men, do you need to apologize to your wife and children or both for not showing them what it means to follow Christ? That does not mean you need to apologize for not leading the way she wants you to. No, you're supposed to do it the way the Lord wants you to. But I'm asking this because failing to lead your family spiritually makes your family super vulnerable to the attacks of the adversary. And it confuses your family about what it really means to be a born-again Christian. And just because the world says your wife should be the one leading the home does not mean it's okay with the Lord. In fact, Romans 12.2 tells us we're not to be conformed to the world, but instead transformed by the renewing of our minds with the Word. So one of the best ways, men, to win your wife's favor is to demonstrate humility, to admit when you've fallen short, and then to share what changes you're going to make in order to get better. With the Lord's help, of course. And he will help you if you ask him. Next, uh, application 1B. Husbands, ramp up your walk with the Lord. There is no man in heaven today going, you know, I think I, I, think I was a little too intense for Jesus. <laughs> I think I needed to turn it down a little bit in hindsight. There's no man on his deathbed or in a nursing home right now going, yeah, you know, I think I, I, think I just was... I was a little too passionate about God's word and the Lord and obeying him. I probably shouldn't have done that much. No, of course not, because we can always grow and get better there. So husbands, ramp up your walk with the Lord. In, in addition to time in God's word and prayer each day, there are other things you can do to help you grow. I sometimes call them spiritual steroids. Not that I'm condoning an illegal behavior. But there are some spiritual steroids that have helped me and other men I know take significant leaps forward in their spiritual growth. And so, for example, there are books that you can read that target areas you struggle with where you need to get better. And I can, by the way, recommend some good books to you if you need them. Memorizing scripture and inviting someone to hold you accountable are a couple other things that come to mind. And if you feel like your wife is way ahead of you spiritually or in her knowledge of the scriptures because she's been maybe doing ladies' Bible studies longer than you've been going to men's Bible studies or a small group, that's okay. You can catch up to her. It's possible with the Lord's help. And I'll help you too. Application number two for the wives. Wives, Please accept your husband as God's best for you. Do not wish that you had married someone else or look at other husbands and think, man, I wish my guy was like that. Because what you're not seeing in the other guy is all his warts and zits and his behind-the-scenes struggles. And if you give in to such thoughts, you're also 
telling the Lord that he made a mistake, that he didn't give you the right man. You see, because God is sovereign and he even works through our own decisions, you can trust that the husband you have was chosen for your good. Therefore, don't don't criticize or ridicule or complain about your husband. Instead, ask the Lord to help you see his strengths and weaknesses and how they complement your strengths and weaknesses. Did you know you have strengths and weaknesses too? Ask the Lord to help you see how he completes you just as you complete him. This is important because dwelling on his weaknesses doesn't exempt you from submitting to him. All it does is make it harder. You see, ladies, your submission to your husband says more about your spiritual maturity than it does your husband's. And when you are able to respectfully submit to him, it proves that you believe what God's word says about marriage, what you believe, that you believe in his sovereignty and his goodness, and that you believe in the authority that God has ordained for you. So accept your husband as God's best for you. Well, Sir Philip Henry was an influential English Puritan preacher who ministered during the 17th century. And interestingly, he's the father of Matthew Henry, whom I quoted earlier. So when Matthew's dad, Philip, fell in love with and proposed to a lady named Catherine Matthews, Catherine's father was a quite wealthy socialite. And her friends objected to her accepting his proposal because Henry lacked social standing. It was a big deal back in England in the 17th century. They said that although Philip Henry was a gentleman and he's a scholar and he's an excellent preacher, they did not even know where he came from. and He didn't have any social clout. He was a nobody. Henry was not from the elite upper class who preferred to marry one famous name to another and considered alliances through marriages in order to gain more power in the community. Philip Henry wasn't a part of all that. However, Miss Matthews had other intentions in mind, so she replied to her friends with, it is true that I don't know where he came from. But I do know where he is going. And I should like to go with him. Man, that story reminds me that it doesn't matter where you've come from or where you've been. All that the Lord and your family cares about is where you are going. And if you will show them how to walk with and love the Lord, they will be much more likely to follow you. And if they don't, that's on them. Because the Christian husband is called to lead his wife just as Christ leads the church. Would you join me as we close in prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this Vanguard Bible Church podcast. You can find more sermon messages online at vanguardbible.org. 
Have a great week, and we hope we'll see you soon.